for this episode of Revolution and Ideology Podcast. This is Nick Lee. In this episode, Jared and I discuss the philosophy that is post-structural anarchism. You can find the show notes for this episode at revolutionandideology.com. Just a reminder that we are now listed on iTunes, so do us a quick favor. It'll only take a couple of seconds. Go there. uh, You can find the link on our website or Twitter. Go there and leave us a review and give us a rating. That'll help us uh, dramatically increase our reach. So here's Jared and I discussing post-structural anarchism. As Jared knows, and you guys uh, will know now, I absolutely love post-structuralism, specifically Foucault. Uh, That's kind of my jam. Uh, Jared hates it all, so this should be a pretty interesting conversation. I live my life hating things. Uh, Back and forth between the two of us. Um, So I guess let's just jump into it. Uh, Post-structural anarchism is first really discussed, at least in the context that we're going to use it today, uh, by Todd May, who's a philosopher. I think he's at uh, Clemson, if I remember correctly. He writes an essay in 1989 titled, titled uh, Is Post-Structural Political Theory Anarchist? Um, he says here, quote, uh, that post-structural anarchism is an anarchism free from certain 19th century concepts and more consonant with the contemporary French political thought. So clearly he's uh, thinking about an idea that's completely void of any Marxist concepts and more in line with the French post-structural philosophers. In this essay, he's asking a very specific question. The center of analysis is post-structuralism itself and whether or not it could be interpreted in a way that is in line with anarchist philosophy. So this is a little different than where we end up. He's starting by analyzing post-structuralism within the context of anarchism. He, this essay that he writes sparks a lot of academic discourse, and he follows it up with a book um, five years later, I think in 1994, titled The Political Philosophy of Post-Structuralist Anarchism. Now, this is kind of semantics, but the focus of the book, he's more so beginning to investigate anarchism as post-structuralist rather than uh, post-structuralism as anarchist. Uh, So let's go through, I just want to talk about the term post-structuralist anarchism for a second, because technically, usually no one actually uses that term, even though it's probably the most accurate depiction, mainly because it's too long. So uh, this is from an article by Benjamin Franks titled Post-Anarchism, a Critical Assessment that he writes in uh, 2007. He says basically there's three ways that this term is sort of used. He says the first is post-anarchism with the italics on the post. And he says, he quotes, we have uh, first a strident leotardian post-anarchism that rejects traditional anarchist concerns and instead proposes the adoption of new critical approaches and tactics that lie beyond the remit of anarchist orthodoxy. So this is essentially after anarchism, much like post-structuralism was after uh, structuralist philosophy. The second one is post-anarchism, so the same word, but this time with the emphasis on the anarchism. And he says here, second, we have a redemptive post-anarchism that seeks the adoption into anarchism of post-structural theory to enrich and enliven existing practices, one which sees anarchism as it currently stands as lacking, but amenable to change. Then thirdly, he says uh, he uses post-modern anarchism. He says, thirdly and finally, a postmodern anarchism, which corresponds to the last version of post-Marxism, 
that reapplies anarchist analyses and methods to the new globalized political economy and concentrates on the actions of oppressed subjects. Most post-structural anarchists um, may included, uh, Todd may included, fall somewhere within the first or second, I would argue probably mostly within the second uh, usage here. So the term gets shortened to post-anarchism, which is the most common way that people refer to nowadays post-structuralist anarchism. So I'm going to read that one again, because this is the one that most people typically fall into. A redemptive post-anarchism that seeks the adoption into anarchism of post-structural theory to enrich and enliven existing practices, one which sees anarchism as it currently stands as lacking, but amenable to change. So according to this, post-structural anarchists or post-anarchists view classical anarchism as lacking, and they provide a synthesis of post-structural philosophy and ideas with classical anarchism. So that's basically uh, post-anarchism in a nutshell, at least uh, in this uh, form that we're going to be discussing uh, mostly today. Um, next, I'm going to read a quote. This comes from Jason Adams in an article titled Post-Structural Anarchism in a Nutshell. Uh, we'll include all of these in the show notes links so you can read them on your own. He writes this in 2003. He provides us more specifics. He says, here the term refers to a theoretical move beyond classical anarchism into a hybrid theory consisting of a synthesis with particular concepts and ideas from post-structuralist theories such as post-humanism and anti-essentialism. It is by no means a total rejection of early anarchisms, but rather a step beyond the limits defined for them by the Enlightenment thought, which had not yet really been subjected to a great deal of critique, while simultaneously embracing the best uh, elements produced by that same revolution in human consciousness, including such obvious aspects as the ability of people to govern themselves directly without a sovereign lord uh, over them. So let's talk about the main differences between traditional anarchism and post-anarchism. Um, the first one is a shift away from the individual subject. I'm going to try as much as I can not to go into post-structuralist philosophy uh, in any depth. Um, I guess we're starting from the assumption that most of our listeners have at least a very basic uh, understanding of post-structuralism. Um, I'll do as much as I can, but I don't want this to be... Uh, we had an episode already on post-structuralism. On post-structuralism? Thank you, Todd. You dove into it a little bit in an earlier episode. I can't recall which one. Okay. Well, that's good then. If Scroll that back. if that exists, mm -hmm. then find that and listen to it. I question its existence, but if it does, that's fine. Um, so a shift away from the individual subject. This is key to post-structural philosophy. Uh, Post-anarchism is the same. So here's a quote from Todd May. He says, "Why does post-structuralist political theory reject the concept of the individual of individual autonomy?" which forms the cornerstone of traditional anarchist theory. Foucault, Deleuze, and Lyotard seek social change no less than the anarchists, but if they do not rely upon a reserve within the subject to constitute the wellspring of change, where will they find it? Certainly not in an external representative they are unanimous in rejecting. The abandonment of the autonomous individual or subject as the locus of resistance, and for it, the substitution of something else, constitutes the decisive passage from a concept of resistance rooted in, 19th, in the 19th century thought to more current conceptions. It parallels changes that have occurred in other areas in philosophy, as theorizing rooted in the subject has given way to the linguist, linguistic turn and more recently 
a social term. Then he says, like Foucault, Deleuze rejects the concept of subjectivity, seeing it as constituted rather than constituting. This is my note now. The subject, subjectivity, is created by discourses, so placing the subject at the center of analysis or at, as the agent for change is an error. Rather, the discourse themselves should be focused upon. So post-structuralists and post-anarchists abandon the idea of the individual subject because the subject, uh, subjectivity is constituted rather than constituting, uh, as Todd May says. So we've th- talked about this extensively. What do you think about this? I mean, I think it's an interesting concept. Um, here's a part, as we've talked about before uh, in that same earlier episode that I'm pretty sure we we, we, did, we had, is the idea that post-structuralism is great for the deconstruction of ideas, in this case, anarchism. And it's important for us to, again, question uh, why traditionally in either more structuralist, if we want to use Marx as an example, Marxist way of looking at things, framing the world, how that still as a dominant discourse then creates us as individual subjects. It's good to critique that and those subjects are constituted upon by, in this case, Marxist thinking. I do agree with that and that deserves to be picked apart. I'm excited to see where the post-structural anarchists think we should turn to. You mentioned it is the discourses themselves, and I'm trying to figure out, and maybe it hasn't been explained to me yet in any of those quotes, or maybe I, I missed it, how those discourses change without agents of change, the individual subjects themselves invoking that change. And again, that's that's the irony there is they're going to be invoking change beneath discourse, so naturally there is going to be carryover, right? So is is that autonomy going to be true in either case? It's highly doubtful. I mean, if you want to kind of like hash that out a little bit, that's the question I'm left wondering, right? So if we if we look at changing discourse, how do we do so without subjects? Okay, good. I'm not going to answer that now because okay. we're going to go through the difference is then the critiques yeah. of post-structuralist anarchism, then we'll talk about the responses to that. So that obviously is one of the critiques of post-structuralism is, in general is if we're not focused on the subject itself, how does any change happen? But we'll get to that. So let's put a pin in that for a second. Um, the other difference between post-structural anarchism and traditional anarchism is a critique and an abandonment of humanism. Post-anarchism is anti-humanist. Uh, this is another quote from May. Post-structuralists view humanism, humanist discourse as a tool of oppression rather than a liberatory discourse as the classical anarchists view it. Humanism became a tool of oppression to the very degree that it became a conceptual foundation for political or social thought. So we have to explain traditional anarchism, according to the post-anarchists, uh, relies on a generalized and positive theory of human nature. And the theory is essentially, which we've talked about when we discussed Rousseau and Hobbes, etc., that humans are naturally good, and as a result, they don't need authority to dictate their lives, that essentially left to their own devices, that they would uh, make the correct decisions and organize them themselves in ways of peace and reciprocity and mutual aid, etc. The post-anarchists have a problem with this because they view humanist discourse or any generalized theory of human nature as itself oppressive. So let's explore that uh, just a little bit more. This is another quote from May. The post-structuralist 
analyses of the knowledge of desire and of language subvert the human humanist discourse, which is the foundation of traditional anarchism. Moreover, they consider humanism's emphasis on the autonomy and dignity of the subject to be dangerous, except for Leotard, for whom it is mostly irrelevant, continuing in a subalter guise the very mechanisms of oppression it sought to resist. Humanism is the foundation of all political theory bequeathed to us by the 19th century. In rejecting it, post-structuralism has questioned not only the fundamental assumption of such theory, but also the very idea that political theory actually requires foundations. That is why post-structuralism is so often misunderstood as extreme relativism or nihilism. He continues, This is the trap of an anarchist humanism. By relying on humanism as its conceptual basis, anarchists precluded the possibility of resistance by those who do not conform to its dictates of normal subjectivity. For traditional anarchism, abnormality is to be cured rather than expressed. And though far more tolerant of deviance from the norm in matters of sexuality and other behaviors, there remains in such an anarchism the concept of the norm as the prototype of the properly human. This prototype, the post-structuralists have argued, does not constitute the source of resistance against oppression in the contemporary age. Rather, through its unity and its concrete operation, it is one form of such oppression. Essentially, the claim uh, of some norm of human behavior is itself repressive. Post-anarchism seeks to deconstruct the concept of this norm and of humanist concept uh, in general, the humanist discourse. What do you think about that? I think it makes a lot of sense regarding, again, if we're going to be critical for the sake of being critical of traditional anarchism, that if we're looking at things on a spectrum and we compare anarchism to socialism or communism or capitalism or republicanism or democracy or any of these other like grandiose political theories and ideologies that are attached to them, then, then yeah, we must be critical of the fact that they operate as dominant discourse and anarchism even being the most uh, – how do I want to put it? What, what word do I want to use? quote-unquote, open-minded of those and and allowing the most individual autonomy still operating under a structured discourse naturally will create certain limits. And those limits to individual autonomy, again, they may be better than the limits we experience under a capitalist society or a communist society or, you know, again, whatever example we want to use, but there's still limits and those limits exist. So in that regard, I do agree with the post-structuralist or the post-anarchist theory here that that is problematic. However, again, these same questions kind of rise up. At what point... I mean, if we want to start... I'm probably jumping ahead of you at this point in time, but let's say we've created our fictitious anarchist or post-anarchist society. At what level of deviation are we allowing individuals within that society... How much deviance are we allowing for the society to still be able to function? Like, I guess, like, I, I do think that people deserve to, of course, express themselves, but maybe I'm a little bit more conservative than I even realized I, I was. I, I don't, I hate saying that. But there has to be at least some agreed upon, like, way things are going to work in a society unless you're really seeking some sort of, like, again, extreme anarchism. And, and we've seen what extreme anarchism is, right? Like, we could even argue that, like, if you want to take it to the other way and we want to go a different direction, right? Like anarcho-capitalism or something along those lines, like what happens in, 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 I don't even know. I mean, I'm trying to think slave trade culture circa the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th century. Some would argue that that was not nearly as structured as we like to make it out to be as historians. That is a whole bunch of individuals choosing their deviance in certain ways. And in this case, the deviance of the slave traders 
and how did that affect those that were, of course, being absorbed? Like, I, that's just the easiest example off the top of my head of like a very extreme, almost no holds barred. We're going to allow people to express themselves, at least politically, in these various different ways. I get it. Most of the colonists had other ideologies they were, quote unquote, beholden to, whether it was the, the Catholic Church or uh, Protestantism or, or mercantilism or whatever. But regardless, specific to this, to their actual – what they were trying to accomplish, there was a whole lot of deviance allowed and it led to – so much more oppression. So again, now I feel like as I'm saying this out loud, as I'm kind of going through these thoughts, now I, now I sound like you know draconian or Machiavellian, like ah yeah, we need so many rules. That's not what I'm saying. I just it keeps coming back to my same critique. Whether we're talking about post-structural history or post-structural anything that seems to be post-structural, is it deconstructs it to the point like where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? So so hopefully you can fill in some of my concerns right off the bat. If somebody wants to, if we want to allow people to express themselves in various different ways, whether it is sexually, artistically, culturally, those are all fine and dandy. At what point do we create space between the individuals in this to protect the individual autonomy of people in a post-anarchist society? Again, I'm probably jumping well ahead. You're just in the theory piece, not in practice piece. But that's immediately where my mind went is it sounds really nice. And I agree with it until I try and see what it looks like implemented. And this is coming from somebody that is clearly a subject under discourse. So that's probably part of why I'm having a hard time flexing my mind here. But yeah. Well, spoiler alert, we're talking about post-structuralism. So there is no praxis. Like there is no practical piece. We'll discuss it a little bit at the end, but that's one of the biggest critiques of post-structuralism. I'll bring up at the end my answer to that. But to answer your general question of like, what does a post-anarchist society looks like, look like? I don't think it's that much different than an anarchist society where there's still going to be norms and rules that people follow, et cetera. But the theory is that instead of coercing people to follow those laws, it will done, it will actually be done in a way that is more normative. But then like I come back at it and again, I'm not nearly the expert. You're the sociologist here. So theory is your, your wheelhouse, not mine. I'm, I'm the history guy. But, but from what theory I've read, at least two of my favorites, Kropotkin and Bakken, and both argued vehemently in different works, um, regarding the idea of natural law, right? Like natural law is enough. That is a norm. Right. That's a norm. So the only reason I'm bringing this up is they would be considered structural anarchists and they had a very similar thought. So what's the difference? I mean, no one uses the term structural anarchist. But yeah, in theory, if we're they were operating on a very Marxist lens. Yeah. If we're pitting the two against each other, like for sure. Exactly. So so what's the distinction where like so this idea of natural law that that back back in had right regarding we don't need all these things laid out to us. Us being, and this is the humanist argument, us just being humans and understanding how to conduct ourselves in communities and, and, and through the observable world be able to understand how to navigate and, and how to use resources but also replenish resources. All of those things come naturally to most species, including humans as part of the argument. And the laws of natural laws will dictate that we will want to follow those norms naturally. I don't know that I'm hearing a lot of difference here in the post-structuralist unless they have something that I'm missing. So I guess what I'm saying here, if they're critiquing structural anarchists like these two examples I've provided in the past, I don't see the critique yet because I feel like they were saying something very similar, even if they were still using somewhat of their Marxist lens of the 19th and early 20th century. So, they, so I'm, I think I'm missing something. 
They're critiquing exactly everything that you just said. For the okay. post-structuralists, there is no such thing as natural law. That is not a thing. Because they would argue that natural law comes out of the Enlightenment-era idea of human nature and the humanist discourse. And that for the post-structuralists, that itself is problematic and does not exist. It's just a discourse like any other. So Bakunin, and et cetera, the traditional anarchists were operating from within the humanist discourse, which the post-structuralists say is itself oppressive. Because natural law is – the idea of natural law is an oppressive discourse. Well, any idea of law is oppressive. Like yeah. there is no such thing as law that is not meant to be oppressive and serve – to really get people to want to subscribe and participate and course them into behaving a certain way. But but at some point – I guess I'm losing myself here. There are – yeah, I guess I am. I'm conservative in this one regard. There are natural laws regarding conservation and how we treat each other, right? Like that's that to me is a thing and maybe I am a product of Enlightenment era thinking and that might be the dominant discourse here. I'd never really accuse myself of being a humanist but now you're having me question that. Um, but this idea of of something that, that – I guess my, my question here is without some sort of – of, and again, it is going to be oppressive in this case, ruling dialectic, what do, what do post-structuralists look for in their new theory? Like, I mean, how far do we want to go down this rabbit hole of a complete autonomy, especially if the subject themselves, as we just discovered, is not the one that's allowed to like be that main vehicle or that catalyst to creating that autonomy? I guess here's what I'm trying to – well, here. I'm going to wait. I'm going to pause now because I'm hoping you're going to answer some of these questions because these are critiques that I know you're probably prepared for. Mm -hmm. So, I mean I'll answer that in two ways right now. A, let, even though I hate doing this and refuse to do it all the time, let's look at the animal world for a second. They have natural law. You wouldn't say it's oppressive. Like we, the example we use all the time, the lion doesn't eat all of the gazelles. Is that a natural law? But that's instinct. If Bakunin calls it natural law, I get that those are two different words and language does matter to the post-structuralist. I so know it does. But sometimes, and this is one of my other accusations of the post-structuralist, getting bogged down in these semantics seems kind of fruitless. So if it's instinct or natural law that the lion does not eat all of the gazelles because, again, probably instinct or pro whatever it is, it knows – I guess it doesn't know. We debate the consciousness, but I don't even want to do that again. But for whatever reason, the lion needs more gazelle in the future. It does not kill all the all the gazelle because, A, it probably isn't even capable. Gazelle are pretty fast and it gets, you know, whatever. It get tired, but whatever. It, even if it could, it still wouldn't. It doesn't gorge itself. Something is keeping it from it gorging itself and not overstepping the autonomy of all gazelle. Does that make sense? I guess I, I, I kind of sound ridiculous saying it out loud this way, but at this point, like, that's what I'm thinking. Like, something is hindering that lion from killing all gazelles and hoarding them and storing them somewhere for a rainy day, whatever it is. Is it natural law? Is it instinct? Does the lion even have consciousness and it's like, hey, I, I fully recognize that if I kill all gazelle, there won't be gazelle in the future or my future lions. It, it doesn't matter which one of those things it is, whatever our listeners believe. Those three examples are still things that are inhibiting the lion from trampling upon, right, what we would, what I'm now terming natural law. Okay, so let's go down the path of the subject for just a second, and we'll do it as quickly as possible. So there's two forms of this subject, right? There's the egoist, like, I, 
the subject that like you and I have where I can say like, I am Nick, I have an ego and I know what that means and I can have a conversation with myself in my mind, etc. Then there is the subjective, which is the subject, which is subjective. So like the subject of a state, right? The lion doesn't have either of those. Ignoring for right now the debate. Yeah, we don't even have to have that debate. We've already had it. So yeah, yeah. okay. Post-structuralists, the problem that the post-structuralists have with humanism is that it makes human beings a subject of the humanist discourse. And so they are oppressed by it because it limits and defines what human beings are by nature, what human nature is, and what normative behavior is for human beings. That's the problem they have with it. So even if we're talking about Rousseau that actually has a positive view of human nature, that's still an oppressive discourse merely because it's a discourse that exists. Because it's naturally assuming that these humans will naturally do mostly good, and it limits them from doing what we would deem bad. And then we get into, of course, ethical and moral gray areas, which is, of course, some would argue relativist, some would argue subjective, regardless. I understand what we're saying here. Keep going, please, because like I'm so dying for a post-structuralist somewhere to take a fucking stand on something. Well, you're going to be highly disappointed because that's not going to happen today. Okay. Dang it. Like just, yeah. Uh, Okay. (laughs) So that was the post-anarchism is anti-humanist. I think that's good enough. We beat that over its head. Um, (laughs) The next difference between traditional anarchism and post-anarchism is the way that it views power. And if you know anything about post-structuralists, this is a a hot topic for them. The first difference is that um, traditional anarchism has a state-centered view of power. Very clearly, uh, the whole goal is to demolish the state because that is where uh, power uh, finds its center. The post-anarchists have a problem with that. They think that a state-centered view of power is problematic. So uh, this is a quote from Foucault, actually, where he talks directly about this. He says, I do not mean to minimize the importance and effectiveness of state power. I simply feel that excessive insistence on its playing an exclusive role leads to the risk of overlooking all the mechanisms which don't pass directly via the state apparatus, yet often sustain the state more effectively than its own institutions, enlarging and maximizing its effectiveness. In Soviet society, one has the example of a state apparatus which has changed hands, yet leaves social hierarchies, family life, sexuality, and the body more or less as they were in capitalist society. Um, So traditional anarchism places the center of power in the state and seeks to abolish it. Post-anarchism views power differently. So for Foucault, he uses uh, sort of the metaphor of capillary or diffuse power. The power is not centered in the economy or in the state, uh, etc. It is diffused throughout all of society and exists within each and every one of us and throughout our uh, daily interactions. Deleuze actually uses uh, the term, the rhizome, rhizomatic uh, view of power, which is just an interconnected uh, network. So that's one problem. The second problem that the post-anarchists have with uh, the traditional view of power from the anarchists is that traditional anarchism views power as only repressive, whereas the post-structuralists and post-anarchists believe that power also creates that it produces. So just as power can create oppressive situations, it can also create liberatory situations as well. So those are two main problems that the post-anarchists have with the traditional anarchist view of power. So what do you think about that? I don't have much to say here. 
I mean, I, I agree with the idea that looking solely at the state uh, creates certain limitations. We need to look at other things that are part of the state that date way back, right? We do it in our classes. Religion would be something that predates state, right, and has also been used, right, as a dominant discourse, um, oftentimes, though, co-opted by the state. I guess what I'm – my critique of the capillary or the rhizome um, uh, examples is that I do agree that the state is not the sole expression of power and that power is diffused throughout society in various different ways and different dynamics, Maybe I'm old school. Maybe I'm still stuck in this very structural mindset, but I do think all of those are predicated on state functionality. So even if we look at – what's the example we usually use in class? Uh, well, Caesar Augustus, right, and his idea of paterfamilia, right, and creating these little states inside the family, these male head of households, somehow creating a large Roman state. Like that is the foundation of the Roman state. Now, that's only one specific example. Obviously, later on, religion is thrown in the mix and 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 different other dynamics, military power. All of those other power structures are there. My critique of this is that even if there are multiple things, I would argue the state and again, maybe I'm being old school here, over, over the years, or at least effective states or efficient states or productive states, as we would call them, all words I don't like, but whatever, are really good at using those different diffusions of power and basically co-opting them to reinforce the notion of state. If that makes sense, right, part of like if we want to pick on the United States right now, one thing that, you know, we see imagery of in a commercial or in a song is we're talking about a national state, a nation state, but like oftentimes we'll see it in image, in song verse, in in poetic verse, whatever it is, discussing things like family or maybe sometimes appeals to a Judeo-Christian God or those things. Clearly the state is what is being celebrated here and yet those other diffusions of power have been co-opted by the state to reinforce state power and the expression of that power. It doesn't mean I fully disagree with the post-structuralists here. Like to assume that the state is the sole power broker or expression of power in a society is probably a little bit ignorant. But I do still, even after reading many of these materials that you've sent me, still feel like it is – it's at least a target, right? Like it's a, it's, it's a very clear target. It's an easier target than targeting like a, a capitalism, an ideology, right? Like here, the state itself, this is something for us to look at. Without having some sort of manifestation or expression of that power – what do we do? What do you do? Then, then of course, we have that second question now. A, if the subject is not the agent for change and the discourse is, so be it. Now, what do subjects do? We don't even have – what discourse are we supposed to be challenging? That's the – I guess that's my biggest issue now. So, so the subject can't be the agent of change, nor can we use the dominant discourse in this case, at least as far as politics are concerned, the state. We must use something else. That also must be diffused. And it feels like we're bringing more questions to the fold than answering questions, which again, you said, I'm going to be wildly disappointed. So, so that, that, that's my feeling on that. You disagree. So what, what, do you, what do you think? I don't necessarily disagree. I think there are some semantic differences with what you said and like what the post-anarchists actually stand for. You, because they do still seek the deconstruction of the state. They just don't think that's the only target that like if the state is deconstructed, that all of a sudden all of the other oppressive apparatuses will be deconstructed, which I don't think either of us disagree. No, I, I think that would be ignorant for us to assume that if a state collapses, all of a sudden, so would patriarchy or whatever, you know, racism or something along those lines. Yes, those 
could very well exist. But I would argue, and we do, at least in the ideology class, that those were necessary parts of statecraft at one point or another. So there is a connection there. Would they automatically collapse? Again, generationally, I I actually think they would generationally. But for those of us that are impatient and looking for an immediate uh, 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 goal, is a stateless society possible? Maybe. Maybe. But then then, then, then I will will say I'm contradicting that a little bit as I rethink what I just said. That is also required. So if you want to – if you want to – if you deconstruct a state, okay, and you also want to get rid of – let's use one example – patriarchy at the same time. You would have to create some sort of oppressive power force to basically coerce people into giving up their patriarchal views and patriarchal autonomy, which I can see why post-structuralists would say is necessarily limiting, limiting. But then I get into like this idea that I'm not I'm not much of a moral relativist, right? In that regard, like patriarchy sucks and it should be deconstructed even if it has to be done coercively. I mean, that's my opinion. I don't know that it's, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, then you're a socialist. <laughs> I don't know that I'm, I don't know that I would accuse myself of being a socialist either, but. I mean, that's the socialist, right? That's it. That's the ideology. We take control of the state and then we create an oppressive state that oppresses the bourgeoisie and et cetera. Like it's oppressive. I mean, that's the goal. Now we can disagree on whether or not that's right. I mean, that's, we don't have to make a moral judgment on that, but that's the, the ideology. Perhaps. Perhaps. Which is what the classical anarchists have a problem with, clearly. Like you just explained it, right? That's oppressive itself, so clearly that's No, I not... get it. And, and like I said, we're going to kind of go back in, in between these thoughts, and sometimes there's going to be points where you say something and then you realize as we go through this process that maybe I don't really know what I think I want, but then at the same time, there has to be movement. There has to be something that is done. And at this point in time, like it seems like... A certain group of people, whether we want to call them structuralist or socialist or communist or or pre post or pre can we do pre anarchists and post anarchists? Can we do that? Did any of them talk about a pre a pre anarchist? That's your book right there. I mean, a pre anarchy would be like before the <laughs> yeah, state existed. I know, I know, I know. That's which is fine. Yeah. yeah, no, that's fine. But here at this point, like even in our and we did an episode on this one already even on our overly romanticized circular societies and again they are overly romanticized we're talking with you know about the ideas of reciprocity and basically seeing what the observable world has to offer learning and then turning it into practice and then creating of course stories to disseminate that information well all of that process is statish in a way there is power there we like it i mean it, it, we romanticize it probably a little bit too much admittedly but it sounds a lot better than, of course, the structure. So I guess are we now are we limiting ourselves if this is an impossibility because there's nothing for us to stand on, just different levels, back to that spectrum idea, different levels of structure. Mm-hmm. I mean, possibly. And then, and then, you're, then you get to call me a socialist, which, which I don't like being called, you know. <laughs> well, don't make statements like that. Damn it. <laughs> um, okay, so now yeah. let's get to the critiques of post-anarchism, and then we'll bring it back around and discuss. The first one, which I'm just kidding, socialists. You guys are great. I don't like being called anything. (laughs) The first critique, which you've (laughs) already brought up, is that the post-structuralist and post anarchism provides no specific strategy. So this is a quote from Todd May again. He says, none of the post-structuralist claims to offer unsurpassable perspectives on oppression. 
Indeed, their analyses raise doubts about the coherence of the concept of an unsurpassable perspective in political theory. Instead, they engage in what has often been called micropolitics, political theorizing that uh, is specific to regions, types, or levels of political activity, but makes no pretensions of offering a general political theory. To offer a general political theory would in fact run counter to their common contention that oppression must be analyzed and resisted on the many registers and in the many nexes in which it is discovered. This is due to the fact that the post-structuralists believe, and this is one of my favorite quotes from May, this is due to the fact that the post-structuralists believe there is a Stalin waiting behind every general political theory. Either you conform to the concepts on which it relies, or else you must be changed or eliminated in favor of those concepts. Foundationalism in political theory is, in short, inseparable from representation. So essentially, May is saying, yes, this is a critique, and he's essentially, he's not even responding to it. He's saying, like, yes, it's a critique, and post-structuralists own it. Like, that's it. Cool. So what do we do with that? I mean, yeah, maybe there is a Stalin waiting behind every uh, uh, structural measure, possible discourse. And then, you know, I'm always reminded of a guy exponentially smarter than May, probably this guy named Aristotle, who really like dug the idea of benevolent tyranny in that case. Maybe that's maybe that's the goal, right? Yeah, but Absolute, that's not anarchist. I know. Maybe that's the goal. Maybe you have me questioning this whole idea of anarchy. Maybe we just need, you know, I don't know, some sort of benevolent dictator. Could be me, right? We all think we're the benevolent dictator. I'll fix it all. No. Yeah, so did um, Stalin. So did Mussolini. No, I, so, I know. Yeah. I kid. I'm joking. So, but here's the thing, right? Like, that's the idea. Yes, clearly. We've all heard cliches regarding individuals in power and 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 we've seen it bear out countless times in history, even as a, as a historian here, I, I don't even have to give our audience examples at this point of some charismatic leader leading a revolution, waxing eloquently of all the amazing things that they are going to do once in power, basically not doing as nearly a, a good a job as those things. And I guess there's certain limitations and we can all make excuses and rationalize till we're blue in the face. But the bottom line is most of the time, uh, the, the vision of tomorrow does not come true uh, for our revolutionary friends here. So, so I don't fully disagree with that idea, right? Like there's always going to be one of those leaders that kind of rises up and seeks to course or enforce uh, this new new way of doing things, um, which would go directly against the idea of of anarchy to begin with, not even this post-structural anarchy, anarchy in general, right? We already know what the other guys, that, you know, the, the Bakunins, the Kropotkins, the Goldmans, et cetera, et cetera, that we've already talked about in this pod podcast, or at least I believe we have. We already know what they, how they felt about things like revolutionary vanguards and how they felt about intelligentsias, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that that is going to be wildly problematic. You can't create uh, a stateless society or at least an egalitarian society by starting with a new quasi-bourgeoisie. I hate to use the term because that's not necessarily what it is, but you are using, you are creating an elite status to begin with, a dictatorship of the proletariat or whatever you want to call it, and instantly you're, you failed. You failed right off the bat. It's instant failure. So I guess that is really the question here. How do you get to that stateless society? Um, again, we've got numerous theories. Is it generational? Can it happen quickly? Does it require exit? I, I'm, I don't know that the post-structuralists are going to give us an answer. Just critique everybody else's. 
which is fine. I've, I've said uh, three or four episodes ago that that is one of the things that I really do dig about him. There is nobody better on earth at critiquing everything uh, than the post-structuralists. And I say everything because there are post-structural historians, there are post-structural scientists. There's, every discipline has post-structuralists, so they are so good at it. But then again, what's, what's next? What's so next? we need a post-post-structuralist anarchism. Yeah, what is it? <laughs> I don't know. Who's got the idea? <laughs> Shit. The next biggest critique of post-structuralism in general and definitely post-anarchism is that they make no ethical value claims. So here's another quote uh, from May. One question remains which, unanswered, threatens the very notion of post-structuralism as a political critique. If it is not in the name of humanism or some other foundation that the critique occurs, in what or whose name is it a critique? How can the post-structuralist criticize existing social structures as oppressive without either a concept of what is being oppressed or at least a set of values that would be better realized in another social arrangement? In eliminating autonomy as inadequate to play the role of the oppressed in political critique, has post-structuralism eliminated the role itself, and with it the very possibility of critique? In short, can there be critique without representation? What do you think about that? Ask that question again at the end. Can there be critique without representation? So what he's arguing is, can you actually critique something if you're not at the very same time promoting something else? No. That's my opinion. Uh, based on what, everything we teach is a critique of something else, right? But in that, I am promoting a... In my in my in my romanticized view, I'm promoting a better way of looking at the world. That's my opinion, but that means I am also by critiquing whatever it is I'm critiquing, some ideology. Let's say in the ideologies class, what I am then promoting is an antithesis to that, to 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 whatever the antithesis might be. I'm not necessarily prescribing any specific one, but if I'm denigrating one, that means there must be something else. And the goal is for someone to go out and find that, right? So let's say a good example is in the ideology class, I do an entire lecture critiquing the shit out of democracy. But I absolutely provide no other avenue or structure or means for decisions to be made in a society. But your critique of democracy is still, in my opinion, insinua insinuating the idea that if a student comes away questioning the idea of democracy, the goal might be for them to go research and explore some other political theory. But my question is, but is am that I making an ethical value statement by critiquing democracy? Are you making an ethical value? You're making a value statement. Is it ethical? Okay, what's the value statement? That democracy is wildly problematic. Um, okay. and it's so what they're arguing is, do I have to prescribe something else in order for that to be a valid critique? No. Okay. Well, then you should have no problem with post-structuralism. Like I, you just said. I already told you it is perfect for critique. If you ever want to create something, I would argue it is the worst. Okay. I never have a problem with – I told you, like, again, and, and we've talked about this in, like I said, ad nauseum. I like post-structural critique. We try and approach all of our topics that way. However, I do stop short of just leaving it there and do propose this idea that at least go explore other options that may or may not currently exist, right? The ones that currently exist, these what we would call antitheses, that's fine. Go explore. You don't, you don't like democracy? Go explore republicanism. Go explore socialism. Go explore anarchism. Like those are all fine and dandy. What's after those? That's That's up in the air. Which, by the way, I guess I should caveat to say that when i'm shitting all over democracy it's a representative democracy that i'm shitting all over 
like obviously i personally have no pro- i have no problem making a value statement and no saying no that you i have prefer you, you direct democracy yeah exactly you don't even think direct democracy would be wildly problematic q james madison right now no i mean um how else are we going to make this is a whole other conversation how are we going to make decisions in our hypothetical utopia you know what i mean in just, any way that's not coercive, it has to be. I'm just trolling you right I now. Know. I do think direct democracy is, is obviously in any sort of society that's going to have to be implemented somehow if that society is to function because the vision of anarchism is not for individuals to just go off into the woods and live as hermits, right? They're going to have to work with other people. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is a response from May to the three previously mentioned critiques. Um, and he quotes Foucault in here. Though I will say that even this response is basically the responses I've been already giving. So he says, The value that infused the works of Foucault, Deleuze, and Lyotard are directed not toward formulating the means and ends of the oppressed considered as a single class. They try to facilitate the struggles of different groups by offering analyses, conceptual strategies, and political and theoretical critique. Foucault observes, now quoting Foucault, The intellectual no longer has to play the role of an advisor. The project, tactics, and goals to be adopted are a matter for those who do the fighting. What the intellectual can do is provide instruments of analysis. So, back to May, post-structuralism leaves the decision of how the oppressed are to determine themselves to uh, to the oppressed. It merely provides them with intellectual tools that they may find helpful along the way. What do you think about that? So he's saying that's why they don't provide strategies because their role is merely to provide the tools and the critique that the decisions on whatever the strategies and tactics need to be uh, should be left up to those that are doing the fighting themselves. It's a cop-out. It's a cheap-ass cop-out. I'm dead serious. I mean, we because we've used it before ourselves in, 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 in things like resistance and revolutions courses and things along those lines. Okay, well, what do we do? Oh, we merely provide the critique of historical example X. It's for you to decide what to do with that. We're copping out. So I will say... It's a cop-out. On an individual level, it's a cop-out. On a philosophical level, I don't see how it can be viewed as a cop-out. If someone would come to us outside of class and be like, hey, I'm having a problem with like my boss at work is like oppressing me based on my gender. What do I do about that? If then we answer and say, well, that's up for you to decide. That's a cop out. If in our curriculum, we fail to do that, that's philosophical. That's my response. You could say that's a cop out itself, but that's my response. (laughs) Okay. The problem I have with this is within anarchism, it almost has to be that way. Because prescribing any kind of strategy or general theory or et cetera is itself creating representation and oppression. Sure. So what I have written down here in my notes, I'll just read it. If champion, champion, championing a specific strategy based on specific ethel, ethical value claims would be oppressive, that is prescriptive, what would be more anarchist than post-structural anarchism that seeks to merely provide the intellectual tools that can be helpful along the way and support, even if only in spirit, anyone who anywhere fights against oppressive power. It seems nonsensical that anarchists would critique post-anarchism for failing to prescribe strategies, tactics, or value judgments. I see it. I see it. And I I think that idea of tools is is nice. They provide a great tool for those that are oppressed in critiquing the various diffusions of power as expressed by state or religion or gender or sexuality. Good. Those are good. That's good. 
I'm not saying it's not. I just... <laughs> what are these tools meant to do? What are these tools meant to do? We don't want to be prescriptive. We don't necessarily want to come up with our own grandiose theory or new political ideology and become the next Stalin or pick 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 your example. They use Stalin. Uh, Foucault used Stalin as an example. So so that was Foucault, May. That was May. Yeah, okay, whatever. Sorry. Fine. We don't want that. Um, I understand why we don't want that. But then again, like here's the thing. No, 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 no. You know what? I'm, gonna, I'm now gonna. You know, I, I'm not gonna let it go. I'm gonna quote my. I am. I'm gonna quote my my favorite. One of my top five favorite historians, Howard Zinn. You, you can't be neutral. You can't be. If you want to get the, I am. I am biased. I am prescribing. Don't be racist. I am prescribing. Don't be misogynist. I am prescribing. Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe if you want to call me. So yeah, like at some point you have to take a moral or ethical stand on certain topics, don't you? However, you're only prescribing half of it. So they're anti-capitalist, like, obviously. That's fine. That's not a prescription. You would have to do the next step. So you would have to say, yes, I am prescribing anti-capitalism. And in order to do that, you must be socialist. That's the prescription. Just saying that you're anti-capitalist is not. But by saying, don't be racist, don't be misogynistic, don't be whatever, other problematic thing. That is, in my opinion, still prescriptive in a way because it's now limiting the freedom of somebody else to be... In a truly anarchist society, you, in theory, should allow, in a perfect world, those people to hold those racist views or misogynistic views because I don't want to trample upon their individual autonomy, don't I? No, but that's not real anarchism. No one believes that. Like, if someone else is being oppressive to a person or a group of people, that's not how it works. Well, and now we get into that whole muddy gray area. What is oppression? Is merely holding those thoughts oppression or do they have to be put to practice, right? Like, that's... And all of a sudden, everything's super muddy again. I mean, there's no answer to that. If someone just thinks in a certain way and it never manifests itself in real life, is that actually oppression? You could argue that it's actually oppression. They're oppressing themselves by merely holding those thoughts. Right. But if they're not impacting the behavior of anyone else and you never know about them, then whatever, I guess. Okay, so then at what level do you decide when those those thoughts reveal themselves? Can they reveal themselves in a in speech? Can they then reveal themselves in, uh, I don't know, text? Can they reveal themselves in artistic representation? Um, can they reveal themselves? So what we're doing, the reason I'm doing this is we're scaffolding up slowly until like, when is it actually oppression? We could argue that all it's oppression all the way on up until it, of course, becomes that it's not oppression. It's just expression until I begin enslaving people again. So where's that cutoff? At some point, you'll have to prescribe. There is a cutoff here. I can't be the thought police, at least not yet. Our technology isn't there. So you can't say these things. But the philosophers don't have to. You might think that you have to as an individual person, and that's completely fine. But the post-structuralists are saying that our role as intellectuals is not prescription. Okay, that's fine. But if we are following philosophers or at least looking to philosophers for tools on how to proceed forward, they don't get to cop out when we have more questions. Well, they're fucking dead. <laughs> well, there are there are living post-structuralists, though. That's my point. You're alive. <laughs> Fix this. I have another quote, and this is Foucault to Deleuze, which I like. He says, If the fight is directed against power, then all those on whom power is exercised to their detriment, all who find it intolerable, can begin the struggle on their own terrain and on the basis of their proper activity or passivity. 
the reason I like this, and there's more quotes along these lines, I just didn't print them out here, that Foucault makes claims saying that what you should do instead of prescribing specific strategies or tactics or political philosophies is anywhere anyone is fighting oppressive power, you should support them in their effort. And that's it. Sure. Agreed. Agreed there. Is that a cop-out? No. I mean, I, I support them, yes. Support them in the resistance piece. Yeah, I agree with that. But then again, like whatever. It's we're, we're talking in circles, I was about to say. But then again, once resistance, let's pretend resistance reaches a point of success and either reform or revolution or something changes and we are allowed to create something new, whatever that creation is, there we go again. Post-structuralists would, ar- would argue creation is power in and of itself as well. It's not just oppressive. How does that power look moving forward and does it end up being prescriptive or non-prescriptive? Those are all things that are not still being answered. So yes, A, if someone is fighting oppression in tenement housing or in labor or in healthcare or full-fledged, right, full-fledged revolution against a state or something along those lines looking, you know, whatever. I don't know what's a good example right now. Yes, Kurdish autonomy is a topic that we're going to do on this podcast here pretty soon. So yeah, should you support that? Absolutely. What happens when it's done? It's for, it's for, in that specific example, it would be for the now liberated, again, in, in the, hopefully in the future, now liberated Kurds to decide upon themselves. But I do promise you, when they create that, there will be prescription involved. I mean, we'll, the post-structuralists we'll, would obviously be against that prescription. Okay, well, we'll talk about it because we're going to do an episode real, very specifically. I don't know if it's the next one, but it will be coming up on, on a couple of variations of Kurdish autonomy from, uh, the autonomous state in Iraq to the, uh, to Rojava. We'll be doing an episode on that and using them as an example, as well as other groups like Zapatistas. We'll be talking about past movements as well. So again, we'll actually, uh, coming up here pretty soon be doing, looking at the practice piece. And, and, and again, I, I, for each one of those, what I hope we can actually do, I'm going to task you with this, is give me the po- what you think the pro-structuralist would say about that specific example, whether we're talking about, again, Kurdistan, Zapatistas, Anarchist Spain, uh, uh, Tehran, Mexico. Yeah, so that would be – I would super be interested in that after we get done describing them. So I think that, that that's – that's what we'll be talking about coming up. So we'll be using post-structuralism here um, or post-structural, post-anarchy. Now I'm getting all lost in all the posts that are around here. But yeah, post-anarchist, post-structural views on attempts at stateless society. Those are what I think we're going to be focusing on here pretty soon is specific examples. So look for those coming up. What I'm trying to find here is a quote by Deleuze actually. there's. Uh, let's see if I have it written down here. I don't. There's actually a good back and forth between Deleuze and Foucault where they talk about resistance, etc. That's where the quote came from, where Foucault is talking about the role of the intellectuals. Um, this is what, Okay, here it is. So Foucault has a long quote, and then Deleuze is responding to it. And he says, uh, talking about power and resistance, we are unable to approach any of its application without revealing its diffuse character so that we are necessarily led on the basis of the most insignificant demand to the desire to blow it up completely. Every revolutionary attack or defense, however partial, is linked in this way to the workers' struggle. I don't know if there could be a more anarchist statement than that. He's saying, as a post-structuralist, all power is so interconnected that even the most minor fight against oppression leads us to the end conclusion that we must burn it all down, basically. Right. 
Django style at the plantation. What do you think about that? True to anarchism, wildly pessimistic or realistic or nihilist. And one of the quotes you read way earlier on in this this episode mentioned, we are often accused of feel of being those things, moral relativists and so on and so forth. I mean, yeah, I mean, it comes through in that quote. But yes, that's that's as anarchist as you can get, I suppose. So I don't know that I have any like disagreement in that. I mean, yeah, I mean, all of the different manifestations and expressions of power probably i mean you're you know i mean you're gonna have to get at some point rid of them in a way that uh i don't know i mean the more i think about it that that yeah i mean that is anarchist so i agree with the statement in phil i and this is what you're doing right now is is uh separating the philosophy and the practice right Philosophically, I agree. Practically, how? How? If we, again, that's where my mind immediately goes. Maybe it's the historian in me. I immediately into all the examples of when this has been attempted or then I go into this whole like dystopian thing when it might be attempted. So be it. And this is where I hesitate. There would be a lot of people suffering in something like that. And that's something I just don't know that I can get fully on board with. And then, of course, we play it safe and conservative, and 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 power structures carry on. It's it's we're stuck. We're stuck. So that's my comment. Like my, I'm leaving without a firm conclusion on it. You feel stuck, right? You feel stuck between a rock and a hard place on on a comment like that. Philosophically, it's beautiful. Practically, good luck. Good luck if you have a a, a moral fiber in you, right? Going back to the post-anarchism, I think a lot of the critiques of post-anarchism, I mean, they're the same as the critiques for post-structuralism, is that people are looking for like an end-all, be-all, some philosophical or political theory that's going to provide all the answers, which like clearly none of them ever are going to. And they never have. Yeah. That we agree upon. And that, in fact, that we've been saying that long before we even discovered post-structural anarchism. We've been saying, you know, people come up to us, you know, to, to students specifically and so what's the answer, right? You guys critique every ideology that's ever existed. You critique every state that's ever existed. You guys have nothing nice to say about anything ever, right? Like, so what's the answer? It's none of the above. Maybe we haven't found it yet. But I will say this. The idea that there is one a one-size-fits-all ideology or discourse for this earth and 7.5 billion people is one of the most ignorant things to think, in my opinion. So I will, I'll leave with that one. Well, so then our answer is we have to go, what, local and individual on a small scale? Like, what could we do in Colorado, like 30 of us, to create a new world or a model for a new world that would be egalitarian? But is I that think what that's, we're left with? I think that's the question that, yeah, I think we leave with that question. Because again, like we talked about, there's the future episodes are all going to be specific examples of people that have attempted this in various different ways. A couple of them are going to be super small and hyper local. A couple of them are going to be uh, much larger. I don't know that any are... Honestly, yeah, I think the Kurds would be the largest example, at least demographically and geographically, if I were to define them as large, the largest example that we will be looking at as I look at the list and up there on the board. Is there, what, like 300,000 people or something? Right, but but if we look at like the various manifestation of Kurds, they're, they're in four to five different nation states right now and, and well into the, what are we, mid-teens, millions, or clo- closing in on 20 at this point, so yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. 
So that's definitely – that's the largest. So Although they're not like a cohesive political philosophy. Well, and that's what we're going to be talking about, right? We're going to be doing – well, we're not going to do all of them. So future listeners, we're not doing all the various Kurdish movements. We will be juxtaposing two. Like I said, Iraqi Kurdistan and what is going on with the PKK slash what they're also doing uh, by supporting uh, Rojava in Syria. So yeah. And we'll be a little bit of a compare and contrast between the two. Maybe we'll actually do another episode on – what post-structuralists have to say about actual, like, in real life, challenging dominant discourses, etc. Because I'm looking through my huge notes documents, and I have a whole section on that. It's too much for right now, but we could do that on another episode. Cool. All right, so let's cut it off there. That's post-anarchism in a nutshell, as much as we could do it in one hour. Obviously, we're just scratching the surface here. We will, in the show notes, provide a link to some more readings there. And we'll probably follow this up with another episode related to the similar topic. Uh, so thank you for listening to this episode of the Revolution and Ideology podcast. You can reach us online at revolutionandideology.com. Uh, I'm Nick Lee. I'm Jared Benson. We'll talk to you guys next time.